Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme this morning by George Harriman. George is the Managing Director of Charnwood Entertainments Limited, an event services company based in Leicester. Uh, George, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us you're right good morning to you how are you doing very well thank you it's um certainly a nice day for it a little bit cloudy over the capital at the minute but it seems as if the sun's looking to try and peek through so hopefully the weather should certainly um, improve hope it is a little bit brighter of course up in uh, leicester um now the reason we're here george is to discuss leadership and really bring that into uh, focus of course um but considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time i'm sure you'll agree in the shape of covid19 I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. Yeah, certainly. So obviously as an event business, we kind of rely on social interaction and kind of meeting people and putting on events. So that's kind of been wiped out as such. But, but it's kind of never kind of just stopping with an option. So we've diversified and launched new products and tried to just keep the business going. I think as like a business leader and a business kind of mindset, you have to just keep you have to keep going. You can't just stop and think, right, well, we can't do anything for six months. You've got to be flexible and you've got to be adaptive to the situation. Exactly right. It's called on business to be adaptable and be flexible. And where those demands have come, would, is there anything that you would say that you've learned from this experience of having to manage a crisis and diversify the business just to keep going? I think probably the best advice I would say is to plan from the start. So, I know quite a few people who didn't have a business plan or didn't do cash flow forecasts or anything like that. So right from the very start, when I was kind of just one of those 16 years old, I put together a 100-page business plan, basically going over everything from marketing to sales to a crisis management plan. Obviously, a pandemic is something I didn't think of, but even like your general risk management stuff can be adapted into that type of strategy. So all I'd say is plan, 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 <laughs> and make sure that you're kind of organised and maybe make decisions thoroughly and thought sound could do out through this and do it out of mistake type thing. Mm. So in your view, it's not just about being able to be reactive when the occasion calls for it, but leaders also have to take a proactive stance as well and be able to plan for the future because if there is some kind of contingency plan in place, it makes it easier to do the reactive stuff, doesn't it, later down the line when that is required? Definitely. I think if you've got even if it's kind of like a basic plan or like thoughts about what you do if XYZ happens, then when that kind of situation did happen, hopefully not, you are more prepared for it. So you can actually spend more time kind of getting that plan rolled out rather than trying to think of a brand new plan from scratch. Obviously, speed is massively important. So if you can create something and get it out there quicker, then that matters rather than spending weeks and months creating a plan. So for this, for example, um, we had kind of like a rough plan of what I'd do. And then I put together my COVID-19 plan at the beginning of March because I could kind of see mm. something about a lockdown coming. and then. Literally, as soon as that happened, we then kind of diversified and one like doing our events to people, we basically brought our events to you. So we launched a subscription type box with food and drink in, basically an event in a box, and that was rolled out within a month of lockdown. So uh, yeah, it's basically planning and being flexible, I'd say, and making sure you're organised. Mm. 
And there's been tipped to be a great deal of change in the uh, the events industry with this new emphasis on sustainability, especially. There's this idea going around that people aren't going to be traveling around as much and these sort of mass in-person gatherings are going to be essentially uh, reduced over the course of the year, uh, the next few years. So it's going to be all change for your sector, isn't it? And that remote side of things, delivering events and bringing them into people's homes, people's offices, that could well be the way of the future. And we could see some areas of this lockdown period really becoming a permanent fixture in the way the sector does business? Yeah, definitely. I think some things will change. Um, I definitely think more people will probably work from home or networking might become more virtual. But likewise, I think it's kind of taught us to actually appreciate Britain as such. And I think quite a lot of people are travelling around the UK, not so much abroad, so it might actually boost our kind of, I don't know, hospitality and mm. led industry in the UK. People aren't travelling to America or to Europe or to wherever to go to those events or holidays and things. So it might be benefited in some ways, I suppose. Mm. And during this crisis as well, um, we've really sort of seen the value of hindsight. We can look back and think, well, maybe um, in this business, um, executives could have done something a little bit differently in government as well. Maybe that wasn't quite the right move. Maybe they could have done this a little bit differently. But I think it's part and parcel of being in a leadership role, isn't it? Having learning curves as such. So you can't really become an effective leader in your role without that experience of trying things, maybe getting things wrong along the way, and then embracing that and learning from it. Is that something that you would agree with? Yeah, definitely. I think um, being flexible, and obviously as a leader, it's like whatever you do is going to be controversial. You're going to have people who disagree with you, and then some people who do agree with you. And obviously, it's not so much a piece of them, it's more about making sure the business is sustainable. So, um, like Boris, for example, I know quite a few things is done people do disagree with but obviously when you're kind of in charge of a situation in charge of what 60 odd million people you are going to get people to disagree with you but along it's along it's kind of in the interest of the national interest I suppose and that's what matters the most it's mm. it's, it's, it's a country as a business and make sure that it comes out stronger than ever so you've got to be flexible and I think you've got to do whatever you do in the interest of the business or of the company or any organisation in fact to actually kind of that through this tough period. And just taking a bit of a backward step from COVID-19 now, um, you mentioned earlier on that you were essentially putting together business plans as early as the age of 16. What was it that inspired you to sort of go into business from such a young age? Was there a sort of moment where the penny dropped where you thought that this is the way forward for you? And is there anybody that maybe you sort of looked up to along the way? Yeah, so probably around the age of 11 or 12, I used to start selling sweets at school. And then from age of 12, 13, I then um, put the sweets and did kind of trade stands at um, like um, fairs and markets and things like that. And I actually thought, actually, I do prefer the events and the selling of them. So that's when it's kind of 13, 14, I then started managing events for local sports clubs, which I was involved with and things like that. And then it just kind of developed really. And then during my GCSE, I put together a business plan, knowing full well what I wanted to do. And then basically over my season A levels, six subjects which I thought actually that'll help me out. So like business and media and design and then went almost from there. And then um I then signed up with the Prince's Trust. So I, I get a business mentor who I see once a month. Mm-hmm. And then during the whole coronavirus pandemic I've also signed up to the Be the Business um program. So I've got another mentor who's the director of John Lewis from there as well. So I think taking advice and listening to other people is um, quite really important, even if you don't agree with them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, entrepreneurship is 
entrepreneurship has definitely been something which has been kind of drilled into me. And I think if you want to make it big, you kind of have to start your own business. Um, although I do like working on other people's events as well, just to get experience. So from about 18 to 20, those two years after I um, took my levels, I did some um, kind of contract work for similar type um, events. So I worked for a band contest, which was um, a German company coming over to the UK. I worked for a Prosecco and Gin Festival. Um, what else did I do? I worked to um, manage some precious fairs um, for universities around the UK. So quite a bit of stuff. Just kind of getting more experience in the industry. Mm, so you certainly went out and got some experience within the sector rather than just kind of going into it blind. And it's positive as well that you mentioned the fact that you do have a business mentor as well, because for mm. those young people, especially looking to make it in business for themselves, that is one of the best things that you can do, isn't it? Recognising that you're not a lone wolf and there are so many people out there that you can seek out and really learn from. Yeah, I think, yeah 100%. It's... Um Obviously, they're a lot more experienced than you. So if you can kind of listen to them, actually, that's quite a good idea. Because naturally, even though you think you know it all, sometimes you don't. So I think even if it's just advice in some areas, you don't know a lot of stuff about. So me, for example, my passion is event organising. Um, but I'm okay at sales as well. But things like marketing and HR finance, which I do enjoy, but not massively good at in some areas, it's, I think actually taking advice and listening to people who are more experienced at, like in those sectors and areas just is like is key really to grow in your business. And then likewise with the experience, I think you'd be I would recommend anyone starting a business without any experience at all. So especially at my age, I had so many people, friends, family, my own parents saying it's very risky to go and get a job for five, ten years then go and do it. But I said no, because at my age I've got nothing to lose. So mm. that's what I thought I can go and get experience for two, three years and actually learn the industry. And um, so I've been in events now for got eight years, and yeah, I've never come out. <laughs> and if somebody were to come to you for advice on maybe starting their own business, what advice would mm. you specifically give them to really get them on that road to success? I'd say first of all, create a plan of what you want to do, and um, actually think it through properly. Speak to people, look at your competitors, and see what type of things are going on. What's hot? What's hot? What's cold? And then um, definitely get a mentor, even if you can't get a mentor through the Printers Trust or a wicked organisation like that, even if it's just a family member who's really experienced in a particular industry or a like a friend's parent or something, just someone who knows a bit more than you, because that way, as you're growing, you can then speak to them and get advice. And I think advice and guidance is key. Um, obviously, as you develop as a business person, naturally, you probably, know, you probably know more than them, but especially for the first kind of two, three, four, five, whatever years, definitely listen and get advice from people and that yeah that's probably the biggest thing i'd say and having reflected on the past i think it's only right that we also talk about the future just before we do wrap things mm. up on the today's program george um we know that with the fallout of this covid19 situation we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working over the next few months but in a year's time where do you see charnwood entertainments being and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve I think as a growing company, I think hitting that kind of million pound tenor is key. I don't know if it is feasible, but obviously 2021 will be a massive year for events. So hopefully that kind of opportunity will present itself in terms of business-wise for us. Um, as an events artist, venue and retail business, it'd be quite nice to have our first bar and first shop open by then, um, which obviously massively improved turnover for us and likewise increase our staff as we go along as well. So we've got a new office. So... Um, yeah, basically, just grow the business and just keep going. And 
expanding, really. That's my kind of vision goal and just seeing how things go. But obviously, if something didn't go to plan, like I said earlier, being flexible and having a backup plan is always something I'd recommend and something we'll obviously take our own advice on. And let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news in fulfilling that vision over the course of the next few months. And it would actually be my pleasure, George, to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point in the next year, just to see how things are coming along in that respect as well. 100%. We're wicked to come back on and speak to you and tell you guys how I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully there'll be some amazing news to share um, as well by that point. And hopefully yeah. um, as well, um, if we do touch base again in future, in the meantime, uh, George, most importantly, um, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because there are still a great many variables in the way that this pandemic could pan out. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here. 100%. Thank you. I was speaking on today's programme to George Harriman, Managing Director of Charmwood Entertainment Limited. Um, coming up next on today's show, if you've not heard it before, is my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup, following his treble in England. England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. 
Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- 
terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. 
So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're sensible enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden That's astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually 
but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell them to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games 
for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banks he was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for 
for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if you wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that 
you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.